self-awareness is key in what I do, since I'm an autobiographical songwriter. One thing I'm aware of is that I'm prolific right now, and I'm, yeah. and I'm more in the world. It reminds me of my late 20s. I'm my late 20s, and now I'm 51, so my early 50s are some kind of high proliferation period. And I think that has to do with um, making wise life choices. So you're living out good karma yeah. and um, not having kids. Because my 30s and 40s were so occupied by motherhood and uh, a marriage that fell apart. So I just, I'm, I'm right now. I'm righted. And I'm prolific and I'm happy to be here. I'm sure you have friends who are older and have been through these cycles before. Is that common to sort of go oh, through yes. cycles like that? Oh, yes. And you can hear it in the work. Hopefully people sing about their process in the work, right? So you know what's going on. Or you, they just disappear. I mean, they're, I'm Gen X. I'm 51. And uh, for me personally, there have been not very many female role models in what I do. And... Therefore, the women that did have careers were they didn't have kids or maybe they had family helping them raise them. Um, yeah, there just were. I even sang about it. There are no role models in rock and roll. Uh, women who could have it all. The long career, the man, the happy family, right? Yeah. These are lyrics from this song I wrote called Pearl. You know, I rallied against that and railed against it for a long time. Yes. Yeah definitely angry and upset and at times I felt it was kind of unfair inhabiting a female body you know but I what does um, that mean <laughs> like my soul is my soul yeah and it just happens to be in a woman's body I see. Um, it's not gender specific it's just like oh the yeah body our that was given soul to me and, is yeah. this great atma right it's yeah. this great being so I just wondered frequently what it would have been like if I had not been. So was that a good time to come along and be inhabiting a, a woman's body? Looking back on it. <laughs> You're putting my words back at me. Oh, how frightening. <laughs> there were people kind of rallying behind the idea yeah, we of were, more prominent female We artists. were forming it. We were making it. And we were fighting against it. That's the only reason why it happened. Because the yeah. status quo for radio was not to play another female artist after another female artist. I mean, I've had multiple DJs tell me that was the truth then. And subsequently, mm -hmm. they were told by the program directors, just don't play female after female. You have to spread it out like maybe one every two hours or an hour, depending on the format. And you feel like that hasn't changed that much? Um, I don't know. I think on pop, there's there's a lot of women. Yeah. So I'm not such an expert on the now sure. in the music business, but um, I mean, I have opinions about it. But I, I don't know. <laughs> and, and live was similar um, in that women didn't open for women. And it was rare that a woman would be headlining great venues anyway. But I, Sarah McLaughlin heard Harbinger, and I was touring behind my first album called Harbinger and I was yeah. off the heels of touring with Peter Gabriel uh, for his Secret World Live tour and that was like 90, 93 I joined his tour although Harbinger was made he heard Harbinger too so all these artists like heard it and championed me with, which was so beautiful that, that happened really doing. quick it sounds like yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it probably yeah. felt like forever at the time but looking back on it looking back on it I mean my first tour was with Peter and I was flown to Germany on Halloween of 1993 and thrown out in front of 16,000 Germans after one rehearsal and were you just like this is it I made it it's all it's uh, all gravy from here oh no 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 I was nervous yeah. and that was my first tour so sure. I was subdued so you played what coffee shops prior to that and are now barely yeah yes I was a jazz singer before that who happened to make 
like an autobiographical album that I don't know how to, I don't know how to describe my work and I've always struggled where to fit in. So and now I think that's actually a good thing. That's one thing that is good about getting older is some wisdom and acceptance and not getting as riled. Now that I'm 51, I'm, re- I'm really happy I didn't fit in anywhere. I'm just me. And I think, especially as I keep making work, it'll just, I'll just be me. I'm not necessarily a pop artist or jazz artist or rock artist. I don't know how to qualify me. But yeah, Sarah McLaughlin heard it. And I opened for her in 95. I opened for Melissa Etheridge in 95, Counting Crows in 94. I was touring with Peter Gabriel. Um, it was it was a busy time all on this first album. A lot of championing and support from fellow artists. And I would tour with Peter in huge arenas in Europe, five-star everything, and come to the States and uh, play, you know, coffee houses for three people. And um, it was healthy because uh, I realized it doesn't make any difference if it's 50,000 or five. And it's really all the same energy about loving your community, your people that show up, and that we are this quilt, this togetherness. Tapestry, yeah. Yes. And, and I realized that I did not want to be a backup singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to do my own work. That was really clear to me after being on Peter's gig, which was amazing. And I, I've never had such quality touring ever since. I mean, in one sense, it was all downhill from there. <laughs> I mean, I assume, though, it can be frustrating being in front of that many people and then attempting to kind of build momentum back up right after that, going from such a large venue to something so small. No. 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 I felt like I I was in his world. Yeah. And you were along in the an ride. English world. Yes. Yeah. And then I would come home to my people and my my band, my kind of more progressive, gentle men, American men that were my band members. Mm-hmm. And I thought I felt like they were younger too, so I felt they were just much more progressive and with it than these English gents, mm-hmm. you know, who were a little older and stiffer. So I'm, I was really happy to get home and be with my guys and my band. And that felt like home to me and just touring the States and spreading my message and living my work. That was most important. It didn't really, the money didn't matter as much mm. as the message. It's a nice point in your life where the money is, is, is just a big <laughs> so This is like, I know. <laughs> I talked to a lot of artists about this and you know, this is why every time I interview a really young artist, it's like, do this, do all of this now because the money is going to be important later in your life. And yeah. you're just not going to have the energy to do it. You're not going to have the energy to, you know, waitress or work a day job and then go home and, and write music and, you know, stay out till three in the morning. That's a very, it's a small window and it sounds like you jumped right into it. Yeah. I, I didn't even think of it. It was just what I had to do. Yeah. And yes, there's always temptation to take the money gigs, the money, this and that, or for me where I am now to kind of live in the past, yeah. to be nostalgic constantly about the hits, which are, you know, I'm proud of the songs, but I'm, I'm so much looking forward at, and enjoying my writing and enjoying being alive now and just my work and my process now. And I have goals for the future. I have future albums in my head. So you're, you're thinking, not looking back. <laughs> you're thinking a couple of albums ahead at this oh, point. Yeah, yeah. How has the, the writing process changed? I'm flying at the keyboard more, um, yeah. meaning the typewriter. Versus you know. the guitar or the piano. Correct. Yeah. I can do both, but I... You're writing poetry. Uh, well, I mean... To start. I suppose, yes. Yeah. 
prose poetry, yeah. however it flows. Also, having more time on Earth, I've just researched other writers more and regard their process and try implementing it. So trying it on for size. I'm always trying to write in different fields, keys, time signatures, yeah. that. Just so my hands go to new places, but musically. But then I'll listen to Burt Bacharach and listen how he crafts a melody. So I will try to, I will just put that on for size and I will try composing melody only to the time of my footsteps, say, on a walk. Or journaling, of course, which I think a lot of people do. But then I tried the Bob Dylan approach from the 60s of sitting at a typewriter. Mm -hmm. And I did that a lot on Revolution, some of the newer songs from Revolution. And uh, that brought about more flowing prose and poetry it mm. it was fast and yeah. i really liked it and i have a lot more in me where that came from so you weren't necessarily thinking of the container or what the song would be necessarily what the vessel would right. be you were right. just putting words on paper right and also having lived you know i have a lot more to sing about yeah. now yeah when i was younger i used more of my imagination i suppose my childhood stories for women stories about me in my limited 20-something years. But now that, you know, I've been through motherhood, some hard knocks, and there's just more to draw from as a writer, and that's great. You described this shift, though, from being initially purely jazz singer into the difference being that you had written an autobiographical record, that you had written a record about yourself. Why that change at that time? When I was uh, still in high school... I was doing both. I was writing, starting to write songs on the piano, and I was leafing through the real book of standards and teaching myself songs. You knew you wanted to be a musician. You just, I, whatever shape it took. I, I suppose I didn't have the courage quite yet. I was yeah. plucking up my courage as I was making myself better through practice. But I would drive myself to Boston and study with this teacher at Berklee College of Music, mm -hmm. and he was not only a, a, a vocalist, but he was a trumpet player and he was a drummer. Mm -hmm. So he had me doing... All this weird shit, like like these trumpet exercises vocally or like... You were singing in the trumpet oh, yeah, yeah, parts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I was to, for facility, like yeah. in a Bobby McFerrin sense. And then... It's funny that you come back to Bacharach. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because well, that's, that, yeah. that's those sort of, those brass lines are so important. Oh, right. He always yeah. had trumpet in there. Yeah. Or I, he had me reading from Ted Reed's Book of Syncopation, these drum patterns, just so I would be able to read rhythm. And I quickly realized, wow, I'm like a highly rhythmic person. My dad was a professional musician briefly. He played bass in a polka band, which is very rootsy. Mm -hmm. And he was on albums, and I found those albums, yeah. and that was joyful for polka's me. Polka's all rhythm. I know, it right? Really is, yeah. He would do like this, you know, it, it's super simple. Like, yeah, sure. But then he would do this on the offbeats. beats. <laughs> It was very cool, and he was this rhythm box, and he would play guitar, piano. I'm excited. When is your when is your polka album coming out? <laughs> no, 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 no. But it's about dancing. It's like yeah. make, you want to dance to music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to move. You want to feel it. So rhythm was important, and music was in the home. Like it was self generated. It was fun. My family was mm -hmm. musical. My sister was a badass on piano. I was just aspiring to be where she was at. Maybe that's something that you're coming around to or have come around to, you know, in the past several years is this idea of once you move past music as a career and kind of just get back into the joy of it. Is that, is that where you're at again? Yeah. I'm not even questioning that. I just, it feels very intuitive right now. It's wonderful yeah. to be in touch with that. I don't think I answered your question though about the jazz. Yeah. I did it both in high school. And then when I went to 
college, I felt like I had to make a decision and I chose jazz. I thought, I want to be like a female Chet Baker. Again, trumpet, right? Because the phrasing is so vocal with yeah. trumpet. And I was, and I have been a Miles head. Yeah. Miles worshiper. Chet Baker is a really interesting singer, right? You don't. I, I don't know. Chet Baker is, yeah. uh, his ears are godly. I mean, yeah. he was a terrible person, full of yeah. conflict and drugs and abuse oh, and everything. But jazz. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so weird that a lot of my heroes lived there. It was very male, too. But anyway. <laughs> I was, like, reading an interview about uh, John Coltrane recently, and everyone was just, like, so surprised. They're like, yeah, he was actually a nice guy. As though oh, like, it was such a rare thing, you know, in and amongst jazz yes. players. He strikes me as, like, this very soft, gentle, very spiritual person. human being. Yeah. Like a Richie Havens or something. So I... Uh, I went to Berkeley and I thought, I'm going to be a female Chet Baker and I'm going to improvise. I want to vocally improvise, like scat sing, although I hate that word. Sure. For the record, I hate that word. Yeah, vocally it has, improvise. Uh, connotations. Yes, it does. And it kind of usually sounds like what it actually means. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and I, I thought, I want to improvise over chord changes. And then I went about beating myself up. Like, I, I don't sound like Chet Baker and I don't sound like Ella Fitzgerald, my yeah. heroes. I felt like I sucked and I was the wrong skin color and I just felt like an imposter at times, even though I loved the music so profoundly that I started to loosen my hold and write songs because I had to, because I needed some form of self-therapy. And that's when the lyrics came, because I had to. And I was actually entering therapy. It was my senior year of college. And that was a huge breakthrough. Writing was a form of healing and giving voice to very buried feelings. And that's when this aha moment like happened. I realized I can do this. I can do this and I can pursue this. Ironically, I got uh, a record deal offered to me when I was a senior from these very first songs. And they, it was from a jazz label mm. because I was still using complicated chords. Yeah. And, and I said no because it wasn't the right deal. So I just kept, I went back to making cappuccinos and waitressing and being true to the music. What do you mean it wasn't the right deal? I mean, you know, at that point, you know, senior year, I'm sure you were just excited somebody was even offering. Oh, totally. And people told me I was crazy and yeah. yelled at me. Yeah. Why did it feel wrong? Because it was this label called GRP, which was just a little too slick for me. Okay. okay. They were um, they were a jazz label in the, mostly in the 80s here in New York City. And there was a new head of A&R and he was awesome and he supported me and they wanted to branch out into different music, but I didn't want to be that guinea pig for them. And I thought that happened kind of quickly. Like maybe I should believe in myself here and try to wait and sign with a label that would allow me more diversity in the music and uh, to not just be in a jazz bin or regarded as a jazz artist. So anyway, I don't know. I don't think I necessarily signed with uh, a great label. Ultimately, it was a, a boutique label with major backing they were called Imago and they had Henry Rollins and Amy Mann and Basshead and Maggie Estep and these really cool It's a good company. Yeah, baby yeah. animals. As far as like being able to sort of like spread your wings as as a pretty diverse Super lineup. diverse. They were we were super eclectic and yeah. edgy. All of us had our own distinct voice. Kate Hyman was the one who found us all. But being a small label, um, you know, they quickly had the rug pulled out from under them, yeah. and I've had like a lot of label stuff since. But yeah, that's I was true to myself and ended up going down the path of my own autobiographical work just because I needed to. Talking to a lot of artists who signed in the 90s, it sounds for most of them like it was a pretty good time from the standpoint of I think labels did sort of see the end coming and they were throwing offers at a lot of people. They're trying a lot of new things, you know, for better and for worse. But, you know, that it was like a fairly good time, I guess, versus now 
as far as infrastructure goes. You know, at least you had time. the support, whereas now uh, you're kind of on your own. It they were like, raping you, but yeah. <laughs> but you yeah. had everything. You know, you had yeah. you had a big, beautiful car waiting for you. I mean, of course, they were they were, they were going to put that on your account, yeah. and you'd be paying for it forever. But yeah. you know, life is kind of cushy in the moment, and they they definitely break you. They bring you out to the world in a way that's difficult now. And in the beginning, it you know, you really do feel like you've got your whole life and career ahead of you. I know. I don't know. I thought so. I certainly was full of myself. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Getting back to this idea of music as therapy, you know, that to me would make it difficult to share those songs with people, to share things, something that's so deeply felt and, and deeply personal to actually put that out into the world. It's different than even performing in front of 30,000 people, but, you know, performing with Peter Gabriel or doing jazz standards, standing out on stage in front of people and burying your soul has got to be very difficult. You'd think it would be, right? <laughs> and certainly my mom, she was alarmed when she yeah. heard my those first songs and she wrote me a letter. Where she was just going by like line by line and Oh, of course, and she yeah. was so worried. She asked me if I was suicidal, you know. Okay. You weren't. Because though. no, no, in fact, the letting out is the health part, but that's the silent generation. I was raised by silent generation yeah. parents, so there's nobility and stoicism and silence, right? They had to take it on the chin. They lived a hard life. They tended to be married earlier and be responsible earlier. So um, coming out with feelings or even going to therapy was like kind of mortifying for my mom. It's been hard for us to understand each other in that way, and I think we've both done a lot of talking and growing through that but that is something i'm still dealing with in fact it's like a song on the new album here in 51 called silent and i still feel mandated by generations to take on the silence right so yeah i needed it because i was falling apart I didn't, I didn't know what it was, but I was having nervous breakdowns, we called them then, but I was having profound anxiety and depression, and I'm crying a lot, and I needed an outlet. And the outlet was truth-telling that happened to be set to music. So that took me off my course of being the female Chet Baker that <laughs> I envisioned myself to be. But I love jazz, and I've li listened to it and worshipped at the altars of my idols yeah. all these decades. And I finally put out my jazz album. I mean, I was offered another label deal, I think it was 2011 or 12, I can't remember, to put out a jazz record. And I sang on four Chris Bode albums. I collaborated with Herbie Hancock and Terry Lynn Carrington and beautiful jazz artists. And I feel this is a real part of me. So I needed to make my jazz album, but I wanted it to be guitar-based, kind of a more West Gumbry. West, sorry. Montgomery. Uh, Montgomery. Yep. Kind of feeling rhythm section with a guest piano player and it happened to be in the form of my dear friend Kevin Barry who was with me all these years who is one of the finest guitar players and my drummer Jay Bellarose who the world discovered after we came into the world together and I mean he does everything that T-Bone Burnett records now he said these two musicians are so beautiful I always knew it and I always wanted to make a jazz album with them so I finally did it's called Ballads and I was so pent up that we recorded 31 standards in five days. <laughs> and I have a whole other album waiting in the coffers. So yeah. when I say I have other albums in mind, that's one of them. At that point in your life when you recorded that record, were you less concerned about ideas of authenticity? When I recorded Balance, you said? Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like that was a bit of the initial hang-up when it came to, again, you know, being a, a white girl in the 90s recording, that, that, that authenticity was maybe a big hurdle. Well, I mean, I felt that at Berkeley when I... 
I keep going there because it was just so profound for me. I, I was from this little tiny town called Rockport, Massachusetts. It's at the tip of an island north of Boston, mm. and literally the FM signals were so poor there that I didn't grow up with a lot of modern music. I discovered the Beatles in my 20s and so on and so forth, which was great for self-making, right, mm -hmm. for self-made music. But anyway, um, I went to Berkeley because it was an oasis, and I, by accident, auditioned for the gospel choir, and I got in, and I found myself to be one of the, the only white people in this choir, Take, actually, take, I, want, I want to go through that process of, of auditioning when you get there and realize that you're in the wrong place and you just went for it. Well, my friend, I had met a friend, yeah. you know, as you do as, at a new college, sure. right? Hi, in the hallway. I'm going to audition for this. Okay. I really want to go get into the gospel yeah. choir. And she really wanted to. So she said, will you do it with me? And I said, sure. And I just showed up, signed up, and they asked me, do you know a gospel song? I said, well, yeah, I know this song called Come Morning," which they didn't know, which which I think they liked right away because they are pros at it. So so I just had to sing a cappella. And then they gave me a test by learning song by ear, which a lot of us don't do, right? We don't learn by call and response. Yeah. And then they put me to the rhythm test where I had to clap and sway in time to a fast tempo. We had that one down, I bet. Yeah, this is fun. You, you know? had the secret polka beat that no one else, a secret That's weapon. Right. <laughs> and then, you know, shockingly, like, I, I don't know, I just found I made it and it was truly one of the most, oh, wow, heart opening, eye opening experiences in my life. I still go back to Dennis Montgomery III, who taught us those gospel songs, and I thank him. He changed my life because it was a wake-up call musically, and it was a wake-up call racially and mm. socially. You were from a pretty white area. Oh, I was from a lily white town. There was, yeah. I remember um, one African-American man, and he was actually one of the chiefs of the police department, and he was the kindest man. So my, my only impression in my own life was just of true kindness. And then I went to Berkeley and it only furthered that experience. And, and there I was, and I, I loved the music and I had a soul connection to it in a profound, mysterious way. I feel like I've often been the wrong skin color. <laughs> I feel like in a lot of cases that fear is kind of put into us, right? But you just, you just went for it. You know, you weren't afraid that like, because of circumstances, you wouldn't have been able to sing this kind of music. You oh just no, I was just first. Chauncey Gardner and yeah. being there. <laughs> I just showed up and sang and, yeah. and my soul is my soul and they felt my soul. And, and that's been true my whole pathway of music. And it's been very diverse, racially mixed life path that I've walked. And music has been this great equalizer. Mm common denominator for all people it's fantastic it's like the universal language on earth so with peter he'd have a very diverse band he'd always have african artists opening for him actually married you know one of those opening artists and we had our daughter who is biracial and and i've just worked with so many people of many different colors and cultures and but i'm still a white girl right so Singing jazz was complicated. I, it made me terrifically sad that I didn't feel at the time entitled to sing that yeah. music because it is a great, great Afri African American art form, and uh, I, I go there with great humility, and I always encounter that issue of race in in jazz. But I, 
I do it only with love and respect. So now people know that. If they have a problem about it, we can talk, but, I, you know. How much of that concern early on was other people? How other people would take it versus your own insecurity when it came to performing the music? Being 20, 21, 22, yeah. 23, was, it's hard. I didn't feel entitled. Even though I was there loving it and dedicating myself to it, I really, really dedicated myself to it, and I've never stopped. I'm still living in that book of mm. standards, and I still teach myself standards, and uh, both on piano and voice. Also, I was um, alongside Layla Hathaway. She's so magnificent, and um, we were college peers. We were always like kind of chosen for things at Berkeley, and now she's Donnie Hathaway's daughter, and she sounds like Donnie, and she has perfect. That she her ears are profound, and I think. When I hear her improvising now, I mean, because she is implementing jazz into her improvisation, I think she is the best vocal improviser mm. since, oh, I mean, maybe since Ella and Chet, really. I mean, I think she's so extraordinary. And, and she, there she was alongside of me, and I felt, I felt unworthy. <laughs> I'll be honest. So also, I was daunted by anything faster than a medium tempo in swing. Like, if it were a slow to medium tempo, I could live there right or ballads i lived in ballads and that's what i called my jazz album finally ballads but up tempo i just don't feel comfortable i feel too stressed out by it i like slower jazz music moodier jazz music so i realized i can improvise really beautifully slowly so that's <laughs> where i live now i'm just finding myself and i i have to say that that all being said i feel more entitled to my place now you, you know i've earned it now and you I'm, feel like you're still finding yourself Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. It doesn't, it doesn't worry you that you haven't quite found yourself yet? <laughs> I'm still looking? Oh, I mean, yeah. will we ever? It's a lifelong yeah, process. Yeah, of course. On this new record, what have you discovered about yourself that you didn't necessarily know before? I've plucked up my courage again to make a social political album, spiritual album. Those three things, social, political, spiritual album, mm -hmm. which I tried with Amen in 99. And now I'm doing it again in 2019. Ooh, tried is an interesting way to put it. Do you feel like you didn't quite? I did, and I'm. I, if there were, if I could go back in time, I would have included four tracks that I didn't include. One of them was a duet with Dolly Parton. Like, what on God's green earth was I thinking not including? You that? shelved the yes. Dolly Parton duet. <laughs> yes, and I, it came out on a on a movie that okay. was not really known. Yeah. But um, so it might be out there somewhere in the yeah. ether. But yeah, I, I didn't include four songs that should have been included, and I. Because the songs were really long songs, and the album was long, so I tried to cut it back. Anyway, and it got a lot of flack. It just landed with a thud in the marketplace, and it wasn't the right time for that album. Flack as far as people didn't want a political record from you? Um, I think, again, like me being a white girl and mm. being influenced by the music around me jazz and neo-soul, the neo-soul movement, mm -hmm. and DJ Premier was scratching on the album, and um, Tion... Watkins, T-Boz from TLC mm -hmm. was singing background vocals on it. And I was implementing beautiful, these beautiful string arrangements that I felt kind of Barry White inspired because he was actually an, an amazing arranger. And I wanted that, I wanted flutes. I wanted yeah. strings. You wanted a full, rich. Yes, yeah. but married to rhythms that were kind of neo-soul influenced. And I think it was a little radical and I think it wasn't understood. The hangups were more musically than subject matter. Both. both. Yeah, both. Both. But I mean, people 
some people really, 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 really loved the album. And that kept me going. So I just, I needed to pluck up my bravery because, ah, because my heroes were brave. Yeah. And I need to live bravely or else what's the point, right? Yeah. I mean, and they were doing it at a time. They were of a race where it was probably a lot more difficult to say that on record. You, You were coming from a, a place of privilege in a sense right. that you were able to to do that right marvin gay another yeah. great hero for yeah. me and he informed both of those albums for me amen and revolution he was met with a lot of opposition about making what's going on in 71 i think so i mean mercy me feels still feels radical from the point of the subject matter and the way he was putting it into a pop song at the time you know, like we had had protest songs before, you know, Bob Dylan and Woody Guthrie, but but the way that he was using a a Motown sound. Absolutely, that that's right. Yeah, it was so ahead of his time. That's right. You went back to that. You you covered. The song. I needed to cover that song because I love it so much. It's actually really really hard to sing. His phrasing is ridiculous. He's like some fine Brazilian singer or something. I recently saw. Uh, I think it was just a live performance of I heard it through the grapevine but somebody stripped away the music and you don't cool I mean you know because you've got all this like you got the funk brothers you got this amazing music happening you're like oh yeah he's a great singer but then you hear it without music and you're like oh he is doing a lot of work here that you don't even know it's right he's so in the groove and yeah. everything's anticipated in these soulful ways yeah and he's, he's dancing a little bit while he's singing it like he is he's feeling it he's a piano player yeah. and an arranger and, and a great producer yeah, he totally inspired me for both of these albums. And like I said, my heroes were brave my and lasting artists. You know, they're not just singing about, oh, my baby left me. They're singing. I mean, this we're talking Billie Holiday. Yeah. And we're talking Marvin Gaye and Bob Marley and Neil Young. Yeah. And on Paul Robeson. And Essentially, it feels right. like an incredibly radical song. Now, Absolutely. Right? Even Maybe even more so now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nina Simone. Yeah. Right? These yeah. artists that dared to take a stand. Ani DeFranco, right? That I thought of her. That song, it's live from Carnegie Hall, and it's about 9-11. It's such an amazing song. It's actually a spoken word piece, so it's more a spoken word than song. But again, all Joni Mitchell, these people were brave, and they sung about more than themselves, and I wanted to live by that. And we need this message now. We need it now. We need artists to speak out now, because if they don't, then who will? Artists usually are the cutting edge, the ones that need to be brave, right? Even all of us, just no matter what our media is, podcasts, writers, dancers, all of us, we need to speak out right now. Did you feel a sense at some point that you didn't want to for fear of alienating the fan base that you had? Sure, I have that all the time. You still have that? Yeah. I mean, at this point, I think in your career, people know what they're getting themselves into, right? That's right. And the trolling is... Yeah gothic the the online trollers but i don't want to give energy there i just go to and look at bet midler's tweets and she makes me laugh and she Mm -hmm. gives me heart like if bet can do it then i can do it there's kind of a sense that in in 2019 i guess maybe 2016 onward but obviously the lead up to that too but that you have to that you're sort of morally obligated to touch on that subject matter in your music yeah yes Yes, and I might lose fans, and that's, you know, that, that's always happened, though. I, I've, I, I was so lucky to have a hit song. However, a lot of those people didn't understand the irony behind Where Have All the Cowboys Gone, yeah. and, yeah. um, 
Rush Limbaugh thought it, I was like Tammy Wynette, thinking it was a very fundamentally meant, you know, intended lyric. It's a born in the USA problem. Uh, that's right. right. That's right. <laughs> of having you know, George Bush put that in his campaigns. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. The irony was lost, and a lot of fans dropped away. And I remember singing in a Texas venue that was an old courthouse where they used to send a lot of unwed mothers away. They literally hung African Americans in the in the uh, square behind the courthouse. They still kept the colored and white bathroom signs that were tiled into the walls. Yeah. And I'm singing there in this venue, feeling these vibrations, feeling the, the conservative community sitting in the same pews that were there at this courthouse. And I, I'm intense. I use language. I dance. I swear. I have progressive and feminist lyrics. And I watched people walking out, standing up from the pews, walking out. And that's happened. Of course, it's always there in my mind about losing fans. But I don't want to live my life as entertainment. As an entertainer, somebody... I mean, that's an important part of what you do. Music is important as escapism. And, and as you said, you know, rhythm and, and dancing and all these things are, are, are good and, and helpful. Mm. And I certainly wouldn't want to necessarily discount somebody who is a pure entertainer. I think that's an important thing to have in society, totally. right? Especially now, everything feels really toxic and, and bad. And sometimes you do want to put something on that... Absolutely. Does take you away. And I need it too. And there are people that have been strict about adhering to that ethos of entertainment and not getting political. Like Johnny Carson was that mm. way. Mm-hmm. But I can't be that way. Yeah. I know that. And I know that I'll have less fans that way. But I, I don't know. I just, that's who I am. That's all. Can we get back to that idea of catharsis and how that plays out when it comes to writing political songs? You know, before you were channeling personal issues, as you said, you were having or were close to a nervous breakdown in your early 20s. Now it's this, in a different kind of catharsis. But does it, for you on a personal level, does it does it address a similar issue? I mean, yeah, I'm super stressed by the political climate. And uh, sometimes I fantasize about leaving the country, but I love where I live and I love my community. Things are also bad everywhere. Right yeah, that's now. true. <laughs> you know, remember, I, I remember. True. I remember talking to the um, interviewing a British person, sort of like right after Trump, and it was just like you know they were kind of commiserating a little bit because of Brexit, but it's like now they have Boris Johnson and like I know. we're all just you know I mean it's it's bad and it's go? bad all over, but we're, we can at least like commiserate a little bit. I know. Where yeah. do we go? I don't know. Mars. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So that was a directive. And yes, I'm still writing to heal myself for sure. And I don't know what that is, but it comes. It comes like that song, Silent. Old stories come through. Music is still incredibly profound. It's this mystery. It has tiny hands and it goes into our hearts and it makes us feel things. It releases old baggage, old wounds, and it heals us. It allows us to cry. It allows us to feel. It's there for everybody, and it makes a healthier society, a better society, a more wealthy society in every way, emotionally wealthy, emotionally well. So, yes, I do it. I need to do it. And then I go in a garden, and then I go and (laughs) be with my pets or my family. But, yeah, it's my primary love in life, for sure. How much of your life is spent playing music, if there is an average day for Paula Cole? (laughs) um, I still have a... 
like visiting professorship at okay. Berkeley. So if I don't include that, and if I don't include touring or publicity, and if I'm just home, if I'm just home, and that's kind of a very key element of who I am, which is an aesthetic. I'm, I'm, I'm hermit-like. Mm-hmm. I find solitude regenerative. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You're an uh, introvert. I, I, I test as a very high introvert. Yeah, on the that. same thing. Really? I find this with a lot of artists where it's, it's this interesting thing. Uh, like for me, you know, I can talk to strangers on podcasts or I can go on stage, you know, do like TV stuff. Totally fine. But if I'm at a party where I don't know anybody, completely shut down. Horrible. Me yeah. too. It's hard to explain to somebody who isn't that way because it doesn't make any sense on paper. But it's about restoration, right? It's about it's about getting that kind of all that psychic energy back. But also, we're having a nice, lovely, deep conversation, a meaningful one-on-one, and I I'm comfortable there. Yeah. I'm uncomfortable with chatter. Okay. And we kind of fluid. I would know what to say. <laughs> and if I'm in a party yeah, setting, yeah, yeah. also, I'm pretty horrible at that. Yeah. And I'm envious of people who float and are beautiful at that and lively and they work a room. And my career has definitely suffered from sucking at that, at network. I yeah, suck at networking. Yeah, glad handing. Yeah, I'm just, I'm good at the deep conversation about yeah. sad shit. <laughs> Well, now the podcasts are here, you know, like if this was like the MTV buzz button, it probably wouldn't, wouldn't have been as useful to do because, you know, how, how psychically draining is the touring? It's, it's not, it's, it's not, not um, the hard part is the networking or okay. if I'm tired physically. Sure. Or also like it puts a lot of pressure on a tiny fleshy pink larynx, right? There's a lot, people lose voices, it's hard on a voice. Yeah. So sometimes I have to be quiet and not talk, which is again, further introversion, yeah. right? Like, oh, I need to be quiet. It's a good day. excuse, though. It to is, be, it right? is, it is, yeah. right? And a lot of singers, if when they're touring a lot, they need to go quiet. They don't speak show, day, mm-hmm. you know, show, day of show. Annie Lennox has done that. Rod Stewart has done that. A lot of people have done that. So if I'm back to myself at my home, I love being like this wandering, right brain dreamer, child of God, going about in my comfortable clothes wandering and pondering and i love gardening it's like the perfect Mm. counterpoint to music so if i'm lucky and i feel pulled to the piano creatively for a song the perfect counterpart is to go out and garden and be in the soil and be with plants and then come back and the song is playing in my head and i come back with more inspiration about it so that that's beautiful. I love my animals and my home. I geek out on the interior design of my home. I'm just I just love the solitude and making like a well lit, beautiful home, and that's regenerative to me. Going out into the world is harder when I'm on tour. I'm with my family, my tour family, mm-hmm. my brothers in arms. Because again, I'm the only female. You know, I'm I love women, but I'm usually I'm the only woman and I'm with these kind, beautiful men. Is it just that there's more men playing instruments or how does it? Oh yes. Always has been. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it was about 13 to one ratio when I was at Berkeley and then welcome to the music business. And there's just very few women. Lilith Fair, all of the the artists were women, but then if you looked at the crew and the, the management and it was all men and yeah. So, uh, I've just learned to be at home with that and, my band is my family. 
They are my family. They are my best friends. Jay Bellarose, since I was 19. Kevin Barry, since I was 19. Chris Bruce, he tours with me also on guitar, and he also plays with Michelle and Degget Cello and Liz write a lot, but he's been with me since 2004, and Ross Gallagher on upright bass the past couple of years, and and he's millennial, he's next generation, mm. and that's beautiful to be part of that generation. So all of these kind, gentle men are my family too, and I'm home there, and it feeds me in a way that I I can't get at home with my, fam- with my real family. So I kind of need it all, and I love yeah. them all. You took a hiatus mm-hmm. to, to be a mom. Were you able to turn off the music? Were you, were you able were you able to sort of turn off the creative process and focus on that for a while? Uh, I'm lucky to have my daughter, and oh, I just love her. Like, I guess I love her more than anything with yeah. the music. So um, I'm just so lucky for that. And when I got the all the Grammy nominations and the Grammy and all that attention, and again, this introvert was yeah. struggling with all that attention, right? Yeah. And I didn't know how to negotiate that, and I felt an emptiness. And I wanted to share my path with somebody. And I, I felt like she was calling me almost. It's, if I can put words to it. Yeah, I had her. And that was the most important thing. And she got asthma terribly, really terrible childhood asthma. And I just needed to be with her. I couldn't think of touring. I couldn't think of leaving her. I had a home birth. I was in the ethos of attachment parenting, breastfeeding. And I gave her that. And then I started really missing music. I, I, I made an album with... Hugh Padgham. Hugh Padgham. I made an album with Hugh Padgham, and that's like the Black album. Warner Brothers just buried it and sat yeah. on it, but it's like a beautiful album that never got mixed, and maybe one day we can mix it. And everything is just like, it just wasn't working for me in the music business. I didn't know how to get back in, and it was changing. It was getting digital. It was a struggle, and I didn't feel, again, like the marketplace was at all receptive to me. It was just yeah. harsh. So I stayed with my daughter, and then I realized I needed to d- get divorced. <laughs> and I, that that took two years in court, and uh, that was the worst experience of my life. And um, that just took time. That took time, and I needed to give it time in order to have a healthful, well-being and personal life, to see my daughter safely. I, I wanted custody of my daughter. It sounds like you needed to slow down in order to see how much was wrong. Uh, yeah, I needed to be there. Yeah. I needed to be there for her. But in order to see that the, the marriage was very much oh, not working. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you know what's so funny about that? To see that the marriage wasn't working yeah. was when I sat down to write again. I was so stuck in my writing. I was so much giving to my daughter. And I had lost my strength in a way. I had entered a bad relationship and it was abusive and I had lost my strength, my voice and a producer by the name of Bobby Columby got me writing again with other writers and that helped me start to find my voice again and I was writing lyrics I was only a lyricist and well, melodicist and lyricist writing to this guitar playing by Dean Parks in LA Mm. and He's an amazing guitar player, but, um, so I was coming up with this melody and the words and the words were like springing out of this well in my being that I'm like, I'm looking at myself like, Oh my God, what puppet head is saying this? Who is saying this? And I was telling myself, you need to get divorced. That puppet head, that, that being was saying, wake up, sister. You need to get out of here. You need to change your life. And it took some years. Yeah. It took some years, but I did. 
And it was the writing that brought me to the truth. So it's like, again, that therapy is vital for me to be my best self. It's a cliche to call writing or songwriting therapy, but this very much was in this case. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. At any point, was it not clear that you were going to get back into music professionally? Any time that I've thought to myself, oh, maybe I won't go back, something happens Like I picked up tennis in my 40s, and I loved it so much with this ridiculous zeal. Well, I guess I'm going to be a pro (laughs) tennis player now. Like truly midlife crisis. It was was a really funny, like, to talk about aging, it was a funny point in my life when I realized, I was like, well, I I guess I can't be a baseball player anymore. You know, like, it's not not that other doors are necessarily closed to me, but like, that that one is probably pretty much shut at this point. And I started there. Yeah. And I was so into it. And I joined a team <laughs> and everything. But then I kept breaking. Like I'd have a boot on the right and then a boot on the left. And then I I uh, severed my ACL and I had to have... I, I, it was when I thought to myself, I love tennis so much. I love it more than music. It's like the universe went yeah. smack. Yeah. And I severed my ACL. And Somebody somebody was trying... Your body was trying to tell you something. <laughs> yes, it sounds like, yeah. That's right. Wake up, sister, again. Well, yeah. Or I guess that happened too when I thought, I love being a mom so much that maybe I won't do this. If, but then, you know, everything fell apart there. So it, it inevitably leads me back and I, I feel the need to express. I, yeah, I guess it's just some kind of calling that I can't shake. And it, it's a, it is a curse sometimes. Let me tell you, it really is hard sometimes and it sucks sometimes. And it makes me feel different from other women, like raising my daughter and going to school and meeting other moms, I felt so other, and it's hard to make friends. I felt like I was in middle school all over again. Do, doing what you're doing, or like having been that person who is on MTV? Oh, both. Yeah. Both. I mean, celebrity is its own weird thing. Yeah. If I had been in New York, and when I was in New York, it was better, but in a small town, because after the divorce, I moved back to Massachusetts to have my parents help me raise my daughter so I could work again, because I was so drained from the marriage, I needed... I need to make an income again. I needed to work again and raise my daughter. I was the sole breadwinner. So I needed someone to be with her so I could tour. Does having having those two really huge hits early on, is, is that a blessing or a curse? I mean, it's been both for yeah. sure. But um, I think I'm going to choose to look at it as a, a blessing. And financially, it's been the thing that's allowed me to have integrity elsewhere. Like it's kind of funny. Of it's <laughs> funny. No, it's funny. It's funny because I, you know, it's, I was reading an interview that you did, and it's something that, like, I think about a lot with regards to how attitudes have changed, specifically versus like Gen X versus millennials and beyond. You know, the idea of selling out, but it's that that has allowed you to do what you want in all of the years since. That's right. If you can figure out how to live within your means, then, you know, of course, mean meant I had to downscale, downscale, you know, quite a few times. But then, like, I can live with integrity and I can keep making new work and be an independent out, independent artist. Like, I wanted to leave Warner Brothers years ago. I wanted to be independent. I get to produce myself and be prolific. I can re- release an album every year, every two years. I don't have to have anyone in the control room telling me what yeah. to make. That Kickstarter must have been heartening. To yeah. know that, you know, I mean, you know you have fans, but to know that you have fans that support you enough to pay that money to help you create the thing you want to create. I mean, That's that, right. And it sounds like it came at just the right time. And it did. And I thank 
I thank some of the artists before me that started that path so beautifully, like Amanda Palmer, right? Yeah, so I did that, and there it was. And then I can own my masters, right? And I can be more prolific and, I don't know, just go about making good work. Because I, th- I, I think about my mortality. I meditate on my death. I think about what I'm going to leave behind. It's the quality of the work. You want to be able to stand by the quality of your work. So I want to leave a good body of work that my daughter can inherit and that will be lasting. Sounds like you have a lot that you really still want to get out, though. Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and not just music. I do want to write a book. I want to write beyond music. I'm fortunate that my I'm, I'm still in good voice, but that's hard. You know, a lot of people's voices change, so I'm aware of that. Um, I have, like, th- at least three albums in my head right now. I can't go fast enough. You're also not that old. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, you are, like, compared to, like, you know, again, MTV pop star, but, like, you're not, you're not like, dying of old age. No, <laughs> no, I know. Got time. I know, isn't that weird? But I feel... I think about it constantly. Like, don't do get me wrong, and I always have. You do, you have time. I, I think about it all the time, too. Yeah. And I think it's healthy. It's Is not it? depressing. It's healthy. It's a, it can be. <laughs> right, if you're really, if you're really some, thinking about it too some hard. Some days it is, but yeah, yeah, right, right. yeah. But you're, I mean, you sound like you're in a really good place. I mean, the Tibetan monks do it as a yeah. practice. Because you're seizing the now. You can't let it take over your life. No, you can't. Yeah, that no. defeats the whole purpose of living. I know. I know. Thank God for my friends who rescue me from myself, right? Yeah. I need an extrovert friend here and there to help me, help me out. My friend, uh, Melora Hardin, she's an actor. She was Jan on The Office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's in, um, in the bold type now, but she's, she rescues me from me. She's joyful and helps me. You know, you need that person, but it, but it's also probably, it's also very empowering to probably to know that you've been that person for a lot of people, even a lot of people you've never met. Oh God, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think about that, but I'm there's sure a you responsibility. Get I'm sure that, like, well, all the time, you yeah. Know, see you at shows. And there's tell a hug you line. That. There's a hug line after shows, <laughs> and I hear the most amazing stories. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I'm sure, like in some of your moments, there have been times when you've sort of wanted to disown the hit songs, but knowing that what those songs have done for people, you can't really ever effectively disown them because they're still out in the of world and they're not. still helping people. Of course. I'm proud of them. They're cool and funky. I mean, I don't think there's ever been anything like Where Have All the Cowboys Gone? It's just so weird and unusual and such a blend of things. Yeah. I mean, the guitar work on that by Greg Lee is stunning. The lyrics are complicated. It was actually XTC that inspired me mm. to write that. All their wit their and irony. Their time signatures. And, yes, yeah. and their stories and their humor. Mm-hmm. And I felt like there should be more humor by women in pop. Yeah. But make my spin on it as an organic, rootsy thing. I mean, it's got like a Ringo-influenced drum groove by... None other than Jay Bellarose, who went on to be like one of the godliest drummers mm-hmm. alive today, and discovered by so many beautiful musicians like Joe Henry and T Bone. And it's just what it is. I'm really, really proud of it. And I don't want to wait again. People don't really understand all the meaning behind sure. it. And but I, but I you was... can't, but that's okay, right? 
Yeah. I mean, because people, people project their own meaning that's onto right. things. Yeah. And that's good. There's layers. It, it lives, it lives its life beyond you and it has to. Oh, and it has. I mean, Dawson, forever it was like the, yeah. that Dawson's Creek song and that cowboy song, right? It's bigger than the mm-hmm. song itself in a way, or certainly bigger than me. People know the songs more than they yeah. know Paula Cole, right? They don't, people are starting to remember Paula Cole again, though. I don't know what's going on, but it's good. I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. It was like so annoyingly attached to, Dawson's Creek for a while, even though it had been a hit and known in its yeah. own life anyway, but um, it got dropped from being used as the theme song to Dawson's Creek, and that was not my doing. They just the royalties. Yeah, they yeah. they didn't ask. They just changed the song, but um, I'm glad because now people know it on their own time in their own turn and. It's being covered by these really cool artists. Mm-hmm. Like, they did this unusual, beautiful thing with it. Sometimes I like it more than the original. Called, they called it Dante's Creek, but it's beautiful. <laughs> and Hyam, they covered it recently. Not recorded. I hope they recorded it, but they covered it live. And it's, I'm just, like, touched. It's, so I think it's, there's some, something going on about the longevity of the music. It's lasting. Yay. <laughs> Yay. There you go. What an absolutely wonderful conversation with Paula Cole. Her new record, Revolution, is out now on 675 Records. Thanks so much to her. Thanks to Shorefire for setting that up. Really, really enjoyed that talk. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. Please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Like us on Facebook. All of those things are very important to keeping the show going. If you have any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. Falls on Tumblr, that's also rylcast.tumblr.com. And uh, that's about all we got for this week, so stick around because we're going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of our IYL. 